Our sermon text this morning is uh, Ruth chapter 1, verses 6 through 22. But let me begin by reading at the beginning of the chapter, just to put these verses in a little bit of context. So let's give careful attention to the public reading of God's word as it's found in Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion, and they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Machlon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard that in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-laws, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb? that they may become your husbands. Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for is it exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me? Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, But Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, uh, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word to each of our hearts this morning. Let's pray. 
Father, we bless you as the one who has given us all good gifts, especially the gift of your word. May this word be a lamp to our feet, and may it be a light to our path as we reflect on it this morning, that we might grow together in our knowledge of you and ourselves and the world that you have made, that we might more enjoy the calling that you have given to us, and that we might honor you more along the path of life, praying in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Be seated, please. Well, we are in a series on the book of Ruth. This is the third sermon. Our first one overviewed the entire book in one sermon, and then uh, the last time I was here, we looked at those first five verses where Naomi experiences basically the loss of everything. That comes to expression in her life in terms of the loss of grain, and the loss of males, male husband, male children. Naomi really experienced the loss of everything. We would have to uh, try to imagine in our cultural context, say a a woman in her uh, late 60s or 70s who has no marketable skills, who has no social security, no 401k, uh, no medical insurance, no kind of retirement at all, uh, destitute. No way of having provision made. That was Naomi. Naomi had lost everything. Well, in the passage that we're looking at today, we, ex- we see Naomi uh, starting to return. She's returning from that loss. And um, I've told you before that Hebrew mothers, uh, unlike our English teachers, always told their kids to repeat their vocabulary so that people would get the main point. And it's very easy to see, uh, depending on your translation, but especially if you're reading in Hebrew, that return is the key word here. Uh, Just notice uh, how Hebrew mothers also taught their kids like to repeat an idea at the very beginning and the very end in order to make the point. Uh, Look at verse 6 in our text. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return. Uh, Here the storyteller, who's narrating Naomi's story to us, tells us right up front what this whole text is about. It's about Naomi returning. Now go to the very last verse that we read, verse 22. So Naomi returned. So the, um, uh, there's a certain literary technique that I teach my students, and I, I jokingly call it the two-point Baptist. Because the Baptist sermon, the preacher tells you what he's going to tell you, and then he tells you, and then he tells you what he told you. Well, most of the time, Hebrew authors are two-point Baptists. They only tell you what they're going to tell you, And then they tell you, but they don't go and tell you what they told you. This guy is a three-point Baptist. Uh, Notice that in verse 6, he says, what this is about is Naomi's return. And then at the very end, he says, what I've just told you about is Naomi's return. And then what's that long section in the middle all about? It's all about Naomi's return. Just look at some of the verses here. Um, If we start, for example, in verse 8. 
Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back. Now, that's the word return in Hebrew, and some of your translations, like the ESV maybe or the NSB, are going to use the word return here. NIV that I have is saying, go back, verse 8. At the end of verse 10, and said to her, we will go back. There's our word return again. Verse 11, but Naomi said, return. Verse 12, return. If we go over to verse 15, look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back. That's our verb return to her people and her gods. Go back. It's our word return. Uh, Verse 16, but Ruth replied, do not urge me to leave you or to turn back. It's the word return. Uh, And then verse 21, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back. It's the verb return. You can't miss what this part of the story is all about. It's all about Naomi's return from loss. And uh, so we want to take a look at this particular uh, story with regard to Naomi's return from loss. In, In our section here, there are really three parts based on three dialogues. Uh, In verses, uh, or or rather based on three movements, in in verses 6 and 7, we have how the return begins. Uh, Naomi hears that God has given uh, provision for his people, and so she and her two daughter-in-laws, they set out to return. Then their return gets interrupted. It gets interrupted. It's kind of like, you know, when my family travels, we typically don't drive for more than two hours. Uh, We drive for two hours. That's a good time to fill the gas tank back up, get something to drink, get something to nibble on. So, you know, you can, you kind of, you pause, you, you converse. Well, they did something like that, only it turned into a threefold dialogue. Uh, and in verses six, 8 to 18, we get this kind of long dialogue section. And, uh, and there are a lot of interesting things in there that we don't have time to talk about. But notice just in verse 8, it starts, Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law. That language is reflecting a, a kind of level of their relationship at this point. And she says, go back each to your mother's home. Well, at the end of that dialogue, the the girls protest and they say, no way, Uh, you're going, we're going, we're sticking with you. So that's the first dialogue. Now notice in verse 11, but Naomi said, return home, my daughters. They're no longer her daughters-in-law, they're her daughters. This is much, the, 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 the conversation is getting much more intimate She's speaking to them with a much greater uh, level of passion, of emotion, when she says to them, uh, return. And at the end of that second dialogue, Orpah, uh, remember Orpah means stubborn. Orpah says, okay, I'm going home. I'm not continuing on. But what's it say with regard to Ruth? Ruth clung to her. Then we get the third conversation, and, and look, said Naomi, Your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. A weird kind of evangelism in it, isn't it? Your your sister's going back to false gods. Why don't you do the same thing? Go back to those false gods of Moab. But at any rate, that would be a sermon in and of itself. 
And then, of course, we get probably the best-known section in the book of Ruth that has been used in more weddings than probably uh, any other text. And uh, in verse 18, it says, when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she gave up. Um, And so there's kind of a, a passiveness about Naomi at this point. And then the final section after these dialogues, when they get back to the business of returning, in the final section, the return is complete, but not really. There's a lot of stuff that still needs to be dealt with. So this text is inviting us to to look at the whole process of having experienced loss in our lives. What does it look like as we begin to return uh, from that loss? Return to the Lord in some ways, return to our previous circumstances in some ways. And if any of you have ever moved from one place to another place and then moved back, it's never what? It's never the same. Uh, No matter how many things are similar, it's never the same. What's this process of returning from loss look like? Well, if this text were shorter, I would do what I often do and what I enjoy doing, and that's just march our way right through the whole text. But it's longer, and I don't know, you probably want to be done before five, I'm guessing. And uh, so instead of doing that, I just want to look at two things in this text. First of all, I want to take a look at Naomi's perceptions. How did, what did she perceive to be going on? And then I want to take a look at reality. How many of you have ever heard the expression, perception is reality? Yeah, well, that's, sometimes that's just flat wrong. Sometimes perceptions are skewed, and perceptions don't match reality. Sometimes our perceptions do match reality. So let's look at Naomi's perceptions and Naomi's reality as a window to our own souls to looking at how we perceive our own experience of loss and how we can measure that against the reality that God shows us in his word. So first of all, your perceptions. And there are three of them. The guy must have been a Presbyterian. Uh, The first perception is in verse 6, and that is that Naomi perceived that the Lord was present. Now, our translations are going to differ. There's a Hebrew verb here in verse 6, which is what the Lord did, and the verb is pakad. And I I can remember back in the, this was back in the 70s when I first started studying Hebrew, uh, learning this word and saying, and having trouble remembering what this word meant. And the reason for it is, if you open up a dictionary, this word means about 14 different things. No wonder I had trouble remembering uh, what the word meant. Um, the ESV and the NASB and the King James, they'll get, they're going to translate it visit. Visit. Visit something I learned about when we moved to Orlando. And I became part of the RTS family, which is a seminary family that was born in Jackson, Mississippi, so it's southern. And um, my wife learned this as well. 
When, my, when we were in grad school, my wife worked for what was then Deloitte, Haskins, and Sells, and she worked at the, um, in the Washington, D.C. office, which was the headquarters for public utilities. So she called um, Deloitte offices all around the country, and she got to learn accents and learn different cultures. And when she called New York City, it was like, why haven't you already asked me your question? Before anything, it's like, we should be done with this conversation. i got a lot of other things to do. Well, then she would call Texas. And, it was, and you had to do what? It starts with a V. You had to visit. Uh, I learned that when I came to Orlando. Uh, uh, our then president, Luther Whitlock, would come into the office, and he would have some business that he would want to talk about. But you never went what? You never went straight to business. He'd sit down, and we would... We'd visit for a while. Uh, And so that's this verb of visiting. Sounds kind of strange that God would like come and visit, but that's why the NIV doesn't use the word visit. But um, it can be used in a negative way. The Lord will visit the iniquity of the children onto the grandchildren for the third and fourth generation. It can also be used very positively. Like in Genesis, the Lord will come and visit you and bring you up out of that land. Uh, The NIV uses a different expression altogether. It uses come to the aid of. Now, why does it use come to the aid of? Because that's what it means. What what had Ruth heard? She, She had a perception that the Lord had come to the aid of his people. So her first perception was that the Lord is present The Lord is present to help. She had just experienced great loss over a 10-year period. Not just a momentary loss, but a long, drawn-out time of loss. But she had the perception that the Lord was present. Her second perception was that the Lord is good. Did you notice how she prays for her two daughters-in-law? She prays for kindness As we continue to make our way through the uh, book, this is going to be a key term that's going to get repeated, and we're going to have to focus our attention on it. Not today, but uh, in the future. This is Hebrew chesed. This is God's covenant loyalty to his people, and he's praying for these two young women that they would experience God's kindness, God's favor, God's covenant loyalty. And she could only pray that if she was aware of the fact that God is good. Even in her loss, she had some perception of the goodness of God. And notice also there's a prayer for rest. We're going to come back to this one because the author's going to repeat this. Um, rest here is a metaphor for marriage. Remember, this is a, this is a, um, a, a, a thoroughly patriarchal culture. Um, women were not uh, like... Uh, out in the workforce, earning income, building retirement. Uh, Women in this culture were entirely dependent on males. Males were their income, males were their social security, males were their retirement, males were their medical insurance, males were absolutely everything in this culture. And so to be a maleless woman was to be like Naomi, uh, destitute. Uh, Hard life, wearisome life burdensome life. And so the expression is, I'm praying that you would find rest. 
That is, I'm praying that you would have a husband. You'd have the male that's going to give you your 401k and all of these other things. And of course, that would be to these two young women uh, who were um, bereft of their husbands. That would be uh, something that required God to be good. And so Naomi has these two perceptions that, that, that God is there, visiting, taking care of, that, that God is good, a God of kindness, a God of loyalty, a God who gives rest to the soul. But you know, the reality is these two perceptions, though they're there, they're pretty dim. They're pretty far back on the burner. They're not what's dominating Naomi's heart and Naomi's mind. They're not the dominant perception here. What's the third and dominant perception? Her dominant perception was that the Lord was against her. Look at verse 13. Would you... Wait until they grew up, that is, the sons. Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord has turned against me. So if we then go to verse 20. Don't call me Naomi. Remember, Naomi means pleasantness. Don't call me pleasant, she told them. Call me Mara, and Mara is the word for bitter. Don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. Why? Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. She was bitter. And the reason why she was bitter was because she perceived that the Lord had made her life bitter. And since her external circumstances were bitter, that like percolated down and seeped into her soul so that her soul had become bitter. Look at verse 21. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. We talked in the first first sermon about how the story is about moving from emptiness to fullness, and it starts with Naomi being empty. Her perceptions here are a little bit off. If she did go away from Bethlehem so full, why did she go away? She didn't go away because she was full. She went away because they were already experiencing emptiness, drought, famine, empty of grain. And so her perceptions are off here. And it's often the case that when we look back, we look back and things look better to us than they actually were. But the main point is her perception that the Lord had brought her back empty. Um, This looks kind of like Adam and Eve, doesn't it? Remember when uh, uh, God said to um, uh, Eve, uh, why'd you eat that fruit? And uh, she said, the devil. Uh, God says to Adam, why'd you eat that fruit? The woman. But it's not just the woman. It's the woman that... You gave me. Passing the responsibility for negative things that happen to us up the chain to God, as if in some sense it's his fault and not ours. She says, I went away full, 
but the Lord brought me back empty. If we go to verse, the, the re- remainder of the verse, why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. Notice how many times the Lord is subjects of verbs here, and they're all negative. The end of the verse, the, the Almighty has brought misfortune on me. You can't miss her dominant perception. There, there is no doubt because she had gone to Sunday school and had learned the Westminster Confession and catechisms. She did have this awareness that God was present. She did have this awareness that God was good. And that awareness was enough that she actually prayed the right kind of things for her daughters-in-law. She prayed for kindness. She prayed for uh, rest for them. But the overarching perception she had, the overarching perception was that God was against her. And I'm not here to judge Naomi because I've been there before. And you probably have too. It's hard when a short trial turns into a long trial and weeks turn into months that turn into years. It's just flat hard not to come to the conclusion, especially for us who are Reformed and Presbyterian and believe that God's in control of everything. It's hard for us not to have the perception that God is against us. And so we really see a very common experience in Naomi's experience. But let's turn our attention then to to Naomi's reality because perception is not always reality. And she has three dimensions to her reality. The first is that first verse in verse 6, the Lord had gifted his people with grain. She had heard. See, that's her perception. She didn't know. She had just heard. She had heard that the Lord had provided grain. This is a key concept. Uh, your, the, the word might be translated food in your Bible. It's the word lechem. It's the same word that is part of bait lechem, uh, which we'll talk about in a minute. But it's, it's grain. And of course, one thing people would make grain out of would be what? It starts with a B. Bread. So this word can also mean bread. And since bread is such a common part of all eating, the word can come to mean food in general. So it can mean grain, it can mean bread, it can mean food, but at the basic level it's grain. She had heard that God had started to fill his people up again with that which was the loss at the beginning, grain. See, she's returning from loss. The the grain issue is starting to be taken care of. That's, That's the reality. Whatever her perceptions might be, the reality is that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing them grain. Another part of her reality is that the Lord had gifted Naomi with Ruth. And Naomi, as we saw in the, in the first five verses, Naomi wasn't quick to see the beautiful gift that was right there in front of her in the gift of Ruth. She does her best to push Ruth away. She does her best to get Ruth to go home uh, along with Orpah. But Ruth is true to her name. Ruth means friendship. Ruth is that friend that sticks closer than a sister. 
Uh, And so Ruth shows herself to be true to her name. She, Orpah goes back, but Ruth, what's the verb? Clings. She's that friend that clings closer than a sister. Ruth is determined. Uh, The Hebrew says that when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go, she said, okay, I quit. Let's get back, you know, 7-Eleven's about to close. Anyhow, let's get back on the road and head back to Bethlehem. What a gift God had given to Naomi. Naomi wasn't, Naomi was not yet aware of the beauty of the gift that she had in her daughter-in-law. She didn't know, she thought, Ruth, Moabitess, widow, she's destitute, she's like me, she has absolutely nothing. She does not know that Ruth is the heroine of the story. She doesn't know that Ruth is her savior. That's who she really is. Ruth is the one through her dogged determination that is going to bring salvation to Naomi. Uh, We don't know that yet because we haven't read the rest of the story, right? We're like Naomi. What a gift. God. That's the reality. And you see, the, the trouble is sometimes we are so consumed by the perception that God is against us that we can't experience the realities that are right there. The realities of who God truly is and how He had, he had visited us. He had come to our aid already by starting to provide for us, but we don't, we tend not to see it or we tend to play it down because we're sure that God is against us. The beautiful gift of of Ruth that God gives to us in our own lives in so many different ways, we tend not to see because our our hearts, our minds are being controlled by this, this erroneous perception that God is not for us but that God is against us. And the last part of, real, of her reality is, is the same as the first. Verse 22, the Lord had gifted his people with grain. Now, remember, that's where the story starts. She heard that the Lord had, um, had visited his people by providing them grain. And then at the end, she returns and she arrives in Beit Lechem. Uh, Beit is house of and Lechem is grain. She arrives at Beit Lechem, the house of grain. And when does she arrive? She arrives at the beginning of the barley harvest. I I always tell my students, there's so much theology in the geography of the Bible, um, but we often miss it because we don't have a grasp of the basic geography. But these folks were agrarian. They were farmers as the basis of their economy. And it, it, it just is helpful to know that Barley isn't just harvested at any time. Barley is the very first thing that is harvested. Uh, The dry season starts about mid-May, and as soon as the dry season starts, we start the grain harvest. And the very first thing that we harvest in the grain harvest is the barley. Then we're going to harvest flax, then we're going to harvest wheat, then we're going to have the vintage and harvest our grapes, and then October we're going to bring in the olives for the very end of the harvest. It isn't just a coincidence, and we're going to talk in an, probably in the next sermon about a Reformed perspective on chance, uh, when we look at that expression in chapter 2 that her chance chanced upon it. Um, but it isn't a coincidence that she doesn't just come back, she comes back at the very best time she could 
barley harvest, which of course, if we know our geography, that means she's coming back back at the very beginning of the harvesting process when there is now an abundance for her to be had. She has no idea how she's going to get it. She has no idea that magnificent role that Ruth is going to play. She doesn't know that Ruth is going to find rest in the house of Boaz. Um, The main thing she's controlled by is the Lord is against me. And so this text invites us to be honest. Uh, When we perceive that the Lord is against us, we have to own that. It's our perception, uh, but it's not reality. It's not reality. We see that there was another reality that, that Naomi needed to, to swap out for her perceptions of God being against her. And I just want to focus in conclusion on that, that statement that when, when Naomi saw that that Ruth was determined to go back. It reminds me of Luke 9.51. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, to set the face is a New Testament expression for the English word determine. When it came time and all of the challenges, the most severe challenges, were staring Jesus in the face. When Jesus was being sorely tempted to go back, as Naomi was trying to persuade Ruth to go back, what got Jesus through it? He was determined. And he was determined to go to the cross. He was determined to have his body broken and his blood shed, as we are going to celebrate in the Lord's Supper. His determination has a little dress rehearsal in the heroine's determination. In Ruth's determination, we really do see a picture of Jesus as our Savior. Now, we're not used to that, are we? We're used to thinking of David, King. We're used to thinking of all these male figures as being types of Christ, as being foreshadowings of Christ. Here we have a beautiful woman who is a foreshadowing of the work of Christ. Ruth in her work of heroin. Ruth as her, in her work of being determined to stick with Naomi until Naomi experiences salvation. Ruth is a beautiful picture of Jesus as your Savior. What a lovely picture. And because Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem, in Jesus' determination to go to Jerusalem, the Lord has visited you. The Lord has come to your aid. In Jesus' determination to go to the cross, you see the reality that the Lord is good. And most of all, as you celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, let your perceptions be governed by the reality of the fact that God is not against you. Never. God is always for you. It may seem to you at times that God is against you, but He wants to remind you in our custom 
on the second Sunday of every month. He wants to remind you of the fact that regardless of your perceptions of him being against you from time to time, the reality is he is for you. How could the father have ever given his son in your place if he were against you? The Lord's Supper is the proof positive that God is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? If the Lord is for you, you too can take whatever the next step is in terms of your own return from loss. And when we're thinking of return from loss, we're often thinking of getting back to the circumstances as they used to be. But you can't ever go back. It's always going to be different. And so be open to the differences that God has for you in your future. But remember, more important than the return to any set of circumstances is the return to the Lord himself. And and by his grace, having our perceptions shaped by the reality of who he is, and in particular, having that perception that God is against us replaced by the reality that God is for you. And so this morning he gives you not only his word, but he gives you the Lord's Supper to feed your soul on the truth of the fact that God is for you. And he has loved you with an everlasting love. And in the language of that old hymn, it's a love that will never let you go. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We pray that you would use this word to encourage us in our return to you. And we pray that you would use our celebration of the supper to nourish us uh, to that same end. And we pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.